Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. First principles, Clarice, simplicity. Read Marcus Aurelius. Of each particular thing, ask, what is it in itself? What is its nature? What does he do, this man you seek? He kills women. No, that is incidental. What is the first and principal thing he does? What needs does he serve by killing? Anger. Um... Social acceptance and uh, sexual frustrations. No, he covets. Hi, welcome to Weird Studies. I'm Phil Ford. This week, J.F. and I are discussing Jonathan Demme's film, Silence of the Lambs, a film that rattled everyone's cage back in 1991 and has subsequently spawned a small industry of academic interpretation, whether feminist, psychoanalytic, Marxist, post-structuralist, or what have you. In this episode, we throw one more log on that exegetical fire, and I'd like to think that we come up with a few new things to say. For while Marxo-Lacanian readings are all very well in their way, I can't help feeling that they usually end up ignoring Hannibal Lecter's excellent advice to Clarice Starling. Ask of each particular thing, what is it in itself? What is Hannibal Lecter in himself? Is he a figure of toxic masculinity or the Lacano-Gijacian imaginary real? No, he is a singularity, and he insists on the dignity of being treated like one. He demands to be taken as he is, and it's our problem if we can't figure out what that means. If Lecter is a figure of anything, it is of his own irreducible particularity, and ours. Perhaps this makes him even more terrifying than his well-advertised propensity for liver, fava beans, and a nice Chianti. Like a good fairy tale hero, brave Clarice beards the monster in his den, but only when she can finally look the real monster in the eye can she accomplish her task, and that monster is the ecstasy of evil and beauty that is there to be glimpsed in the everyday real. Our conversation lasted quite a bit longer than the hour or so you hear in this episode. Here we mostly stick to the topic I've already introduced, but we also ended up talking about how Buffalo Bill's lair seems to be an externalization of his own madness, and how Silence of the Lambs seems to be on the same wavelength of early 1990s cool aesthetics as Twin Peaks. It was good stuff, and if you want to hear it, go to patreon.com forward slash weird studies in a week and you'll be able to hear it. You'll also find other such conversations, as well as new essays by J.F. and me that you won't find anywhere else. And you will also discover the warm glow of satisfaction that comes of supporting a show like ours, which, I think you'll agree, has its own irreducible particularity. And I hope you'll agree that that particularity is well worth preserving, like a severed human head in a jar of embalming fluid. Anyway, thanks for listening. I want to ask you a threshold question. Okay. Phil, have the lambs stopped screaming for you? They never stop screaming. <laughs> no. Me neither. You, you can't hear them, but they're screaming right now. Yeah. Oh, I can hear them. What do you think that is, the screaming of the lambs? That's a classic thing that cops do. Answer a question with a question. Well, that's a, it's a classic thing that Hannibal Lecter does, too. True. He always answers her questions with more questions and then tries to turn the tables constantly. That's one of the cool things about the scenes between Clarice and Hannibal Lecter. You know, her boss, 
Jack Crawford tells her explicitly, and there's a tight close-up of Crawford's face when he says this to her early in the movie, whatever you do, don't tell him anything about yourself. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter in your head. And of yeah. course, you know the moment he says that, that that's exactly what's going to happen. But as it's happening, you put yourself in the position of the hero, Clarice, and of course, as you're watching their first meeting, you're sort of thinking, don't get drawn in, don't get drawn in. Yeah. And yet, even though you know that's the one thing you can't do, it's like it, almost the way things happen in dreams, where there's just this fatal inevitability as the one thing you can't do happens, it befalls you. There's a kind of iron, inescapable logic to the thing. You see this happen as Lecter unravels Clarice, like unraveling a sweater. Yeah. Little bit by little bit, he just draws her in and she's helpless to resist. And we, as her doubles here, like we're, you know, because the way you watch a movie with sympathy, you're acting like this hero character is your avatar in the story. You feel drawn in, seduced, and also somehow tricked and then suddenly you're lost it's a crazy feeling it is that's the feeling the character has but the feeling i have watching those scenes especially that first scene it's a magisterial film and jonathan demi's a great director but also of course jodie foster and uh anthony hopkins are just incredible in this movie but just at a purely technical level watching it as a filmmaker there's a bunch of things that i notice that make it really interesting and different as a movie and not at all a mainstream film. It doesn't adhere to an established formula. That said, it's loaded with archetypal motifs, which we can mm. also get to, but it's not, oh, yeah. it's not a formula movie, like small technical things. For example, the male gaze, this has been written about quite a bit. Uh, Jodie Foster is portrayed, her character, Clarice Starling is portrayed in such a way that she's always being looked at by men, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And one of the ways in which Jonathan Demme achieves this effect, which is actually really strong when you watch the movie, you really feel like you're with her in this world where everything is kind of threatening, um, is by using a technique that the Japanese filmmaker Ozu pioneered, which was to place the camera in a dialogue scene so that the interlocutor is looking not at the character off screen, but directly at the camera. Yes. So, so when Clarice Starling meets Jack Crawford in the first, in the, in her briefing scene at the beginning, when we cut to her, she's looking off to the side at him. Right. So we're like the third person in the room, like as usual, right. looking at her, talking to him. But then when we cut to him, he's looking at the camera. So we're her. Yeah. This is, um, a tricky thing to do, usually because it kind of breaks the fourth wall. But the way it's done in this film, it's kind of seamless. You just kind of go with it. Uh, and it happens again and again with various male characters that she... I mean, holy shit, now that you're mentioning, I'm thinking about the scenes with Lecter. We have extreme close-ups of his unblinking cold, cold eyes. Which, by the way, that was a conscious choice. Anthony Hopkins just purposely did not blink Oh, in those yeah. takes. Yeah, just watch it. You never see him blink. Yeah. Um, and this kind of cold snake-like gaze. Reptilian, yeah, right. Yeah, we get tight close-ups of his gaze looking right at us, those eyes boring holes in our skull. Right. Which immediately forces us into the position of identifying very deeply with Clarice Starling, the main character, and with her experience as a woman entering into a overwhelmingly male institution dealing with male criminals. It's like a woman in a male world trying to like make it work. And, yeah. um, and that's been written about and it's interesting, but there's more to this film than what I've been able to see from my admittedly superficial research there that I've done in preparation for this, I think anyways, hmm. that, that brings me to the other technique that he uses. This is a narrative technique in the screenplay. It's that, huh, the narrative sometimes completely deviates away from Starling's path, her own trajectory. You would think, considering how we are forced to identify with her at the beginning, like put an intimate proximity to her through the camera angles and the narrative at the beginning, that we would stick with her till the end. 
Or maybe we bounce between her and Hannibal, right? Or her and Bill, uh, Buffalo Bill, that would work. But what we end up doing is like for a long stretch of the movie, this rando cop with a mustache, I don't even know his name, who's like guarding Hannibal. He's in charge of the police of security in that temporary place where Hannibal's put when he's promised to transition to another the, jail. The guy with the, the skinny mustache. Yeah. That guy becomes a main character. He's got a lot of screen time. Yeah. It's like Demi was like, I will not make anyone in this film a mook. Right? Because that guy ultimately yeah. is a mook. But he gives us an individual. And I think that gives us a clue about what this film is about. I think this film at the deepest level, or at, at least at one level, is about the individual versus the institution. And I think that mm. that's, that's uh, um, maybe a way into interpreting this movie that could be, it's not the only way, and I don't want to like monopolize the conversation with it, but it's definitely something that I've, that I felt very strongly this time, that this is a film about how institutions are unable to handle real individuals and so seek to reduce us to types so that we can be better controlled and that success in terms of the narrative success for Jodie Foster's character would be to join this institution, the FBI that she's aspired to join since forever while retaining her individuality and the retention of individuality in this film always necessarily involves embracing what Jung called the shadow, our evil, embracing the reality of evil, which an institution is unable to do. So, that's kind of like my take on it. Maybe we can like peel back some layers there as we go, but that's what I felt watching the film this time. Interesting. Yeah. The FBI, I mean, the behavioral sciences unit of the FBI, the serial killer profilers, it's an actual unit of the FBI and it's also the fictionalized version of it is the uh, unit that's employing Clarice as a trainee, somebody sent in to study Hannibal Lecter, this imprisoned serial killer, and try to glean some information about a new serial killer, Buffalo Bill. I'm recapping the plot on the off chance there's somebody listening to this who hasn't seen the film. Um, if you haven't seen the film, I actually recommend that you just turn this off right now and go to Amazon Prime or whatever and just rent it. Just watch it. It's two hours of your life that will be very well spent. Uh, I had the great pleasure last night of watching this. I was just going to watch it myself. And then my wife was like, oh, I'll watch it with you. She hasn't seen it since we watched it together when we were in graduate school. And then my daughter came home and she'd never seen it and she actually didn't know anything about it. So we all watched it together. It was so awesome. It's so awesome watching a classic movie with somebody who knows next to nothing about it and seeing it work magic on them. Yeah. Especially a nice family film like this. Yeah, it was a warm family <laughs> film. It meant that all of us had bad dreams and had like trouble right. falling asleep. Kind of remarkable. It a film this came out in 1991. This is a fairly old film by now. Better part of 30 years old. Mm -hmm. Still packs a punch. It's not as gory as I think if the film was made now, it would be. Uh, but it it's violence that counts. It actually kind of gets to what you were saying. Like even that one mook with the skinny mustache is not a mook. He's a, he's a guy. He has a story. Yeah. And likewise, all the violence in this movie means something. Right. Right. Nothing's gratuitous in this film. And so it packs a punch still. Yeah. And, and, and it's, you know, the most disturbing thing about the movie, I think, is... Hannibal's obvious affection for Starling and her obvious affection for him, yeah. bordering on love, the way she sees him as either a kind of lover or potential father figure, like the, the way that it plays with these tropes yeah. is really interesting. And that adds to the shock value of whatever gore is in there. Also, his ironic aesthetic approach to evil is something yeah. that's really seldom pulled off properly in film. I mean, the, the closest analog, I think, to Hannibal Lecter that I can think of is Dracula, right? Mm. He's kind of this Luciferian figure. He's not sociopathic. He's capable of feeling empathy. He loves beauty. He somehow picks her out as different. He selects her as worthy of 
of his help, although it's unclear whether at the end, you know, at some point it becomes clear that what she wants is the silence of the lamb. So and one part of the story, she tells Hannibal she ended up living as a foster child on a farm with relatives because her dad died. And, and one night she heard this horrible screaming. And so she went out and she saw all these lambs screaming in one of the barns. And she realized that the hams, the, the, did I say hams? You did say hams. All these lambs screaming in one of the barns. And so, and she realizes that they're going to be slaughtered. So she takes one of the lambs and runs away. She's caught. And Hannibal Lecter kind of zeroes in on this particular story as the key to Clary Starling's entire life, which is that she wants to become a cop and hunt down criminals, thinking that once she has done her job, once she has stopped evil from happening in this world, once she has, she's saved the lambs from the slaughter, that the, the lambs will go silent and won't scream anymore. And it's unclear. I think it's actually, I think it is clear if you think about it, that in the end, Hannibal Lecter, like a superficial reading would be, well, Hannibal Lecter loves her. So he wants her to catch Buffalo Bill so that her lambs go quiet so that she can have fine peace. But in fact, I think what he wants, and this becomes clear at the very end when he's talking to her on the phone, is that he wants her to learn that the lambs will never go quiet, that the lambs will always scream. And he does this not because he hates her or wants to hurt her, but because he loves her. And I think that a big part of this film has to do with accepting certain things that we are not willing to accept about our own nature as humans and about the nature of the universe we live in. Accepting mm. evil as a positive reality, not positive in the moral sense, not positive as in good, but positive as in ontologically there. Like a, It exists positively. It is not merely the absence of something. Exactly. Which is the traditional Western doctrine, privatio yeah. boni. Philosophers throughout Christian history, and this started even before with like Aristotle, believe that the idea that equated evil with non-being. So, for example, when you're blind, it's the absence of sight that is evil in the sense that it's bad. But the absence is not, is not anything. Being in its fullness is good. And then when you take things out of it, that's what's perceived by us as evil. In Goethe's Faust, Mephistopheles is the spirit of negation. Exactly. Negation. And, you know, people like Carl Jung, who he was on my mind, obviously, watching this film, I kind of watched it through a Jungian lens, um, was adamant that this was a huge mistake on the part of Western theology to try to, to banish the existence of evil. Because for him, what he saw in his patients and in mytholo world mythology is that evil has a very clear, positive ontology. It's there. It's reality. For a person living in this world, evil is not an absence. It's a presence. And Heidegger also argued along those lines. Like he said, for example, with the, uh, using the example of, the, the, of blindness, he said, it's true that for the blind person, blindness is an evil. And it's true that blindness is the lack of sight. Nevertheless, what is evil is the being of the absence itself, that absence has its own being. Absence of empathy in someone is not just a neutral thing. It's actually a positive. It means the presence of antipathy, the presence of something very dangerous. Which you can feel when you have a truly unfeeling person, a true, um, I don't know if you call it a psychopath. They just see human beings as neutral counters in a game that they're playing. Yeah. I don't know many people like that, but I have encountered people like that. And that feels like something. Yes. It's not a, just an absence. It, yeah. it often, in my experience of it, has always been in the context of dealing with a person representing an institution. That's when yeah. I felt that. For example, you need to get a form signed by a government official. And for some reason, this person who's in the position to give you what you want decides to exert their institutional authority to deny it to you. Yeah. And you need to get this done or else this or that and the other thing will happen. They see your need and they choose to maintain protocol and deny it to you. Yeah. That feels like evil. It's a decision on the part of the source of the evil or the person exuding it to overlook your individuality and see you as just another type and what essentially feels like denying your humanity. Mm. Um, people who've been in oppressed minorities experience this all the time. 
uh, that's evil. And it's not mm-hmm. just an absence. It's not just the absence of the sympathy I expect from you. It has its own positive charge. And in fact, there are a few things, psychologically speaking, in life that feel as present, as real, as tangible as that, I think. Mm-hmm. So this is bringing up institutions. And I realized that I left something hanging a while ago. So I was beginning to do a little bit of plot recap explaining that Clarice Starling is working for this institution within the FBI, the Behavioral Sciences Unit. And I didn't quite get to my point, which is that that is an institution within institution that is all about typing people. Yes. That's this whole raison d'etre. Not saying that like it's a bad thing, because if you could save one life doing that, then it's worth doing. But that's the modus operandi. You look at a pattern of crimes, the signature method of the serial killer. In this case, it's Buffalo Bill and the fact that he kills women and flays them. He takes their skin and they don't know why. But the behavioral science people try to get into the head of the criminal. And so they're trying to create types. They try to understand what kind of person this is? What kind of motivation are we seeing? Is it a sexual motivation? Is it power motivation? Is it something else? And it's interesting because it's within that context, like the first exchange between Clarice and Lecter actually falls apart. Like Clarice is doing pretty well, but then she has been given this form to give him and he's insulted by this. Yeah. And he looks at her and he slips into this kind of Southern drawl, which he does very often mimicking the West Virginia twang in Clarice's voice. And he's like, do you, th-? and I'm not going to try and imitate it, but he looks at her uh, with this sort of sardonic sort of Mephistophelian gaze. Right. And says, do you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? Yeah. And he's like offended. It offends, I think, his aesthetic sensibilities. Right that somebody's trying to fit him up for a jacket here. Somebody's trying to fit him into a certain category. But everybody's been trying to do that. And as um, the head psychologist, I can't remember, the psychiatrist in Chilton. Chilton says to Starling at one point, like all the metrics fail. None of the tests work on this guy. So obviously yeah. he's been through batteries of tests, but he's he's somehow disappointed that Starling would be just like the rest of them. Like he's, yeah. he expected more of her. He had his hopes up there for a second, but then she gives him this clumsy questionnaire and yeah, just another person given over to categorical thinking. Right. Which is precisely what Hannibal lives to disprove, that this categorical thinking can get to the person. There is a little quote from the book that I'd like to read here because it's pertinent. At one point, um, Starling's trying to figure out again what happened to Hannibal Lecter to make him what he is. And he says to her, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. I happened. It's like, I am that I am. It's almost this kind of Yahweh, self-existing, autonomous thing in itself kind of thing where he asserts his own being as completely independent of anything that might have happened to him, that he is something before anything happens to him. And in a sense, what he's trying to do, I think, is to train Officer Starling to see this. And in a sense, that's what his motivation is for trying to dig up that secret of the lambs that she finally divulges. I mean, I have, I have, yeah. I'm pretty sympathetic to Hannibal Lecter. I have to say I fell for that. Um, uh, well, yeah, because he's articulating not so much through any kind of philosophical disquisition, but rather through his whole being, the way he expresses himself through art, as a, yeah. a, we're given to understand a, a formidable draftsman. Um, it's kind of a dec- decadent hero, really. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Actually, his position, in as much as you can say he has one, is your position, yours, J.F. Martel, mm. and maybe more generally, like the weird studies position. Like right. He's uh, in favor of that ineffable particularity of the human. Right. You know, whereas as Jack Kerouac's the unspeakable visions of the individual. Right. And his choice to to embrace absolute evil seems to be made with the belief that it's better to be damned than to be a type, <laughs> than to, yeah. be, to be reduced to a set of influences. This is something Jung was big on. He's like, in order to individuate in the Jungian process in depth psychology, one of the 
first steps is confronting the shadow. The shadow being all those things about yourself that you don't want to know, that you don't want to believe, you don't want to admit. Um, We all have things about ourselves we don't want to admit. And it's really scary to let your mind go there because when you start pulling that thread, it leads all the way down. You know, as Jung says, it leads all the way down into hell. And so there are good reasons to avoid looking at the shadow. But the cost of not looking at the shadow for Jung is precisely to become a type. If you can't do that, you're forced to identify with what Jung calls your persona, which is your made-up mask that you concoct to behave in the world properly. And so the unconscious gets more and more control over your psyche as you are identifying more and more with what is essentially a mask and not your actual face, you know? The film is inviting us to look into those dark corners that we usually don't want to look into. And for that reason, Hannibal Lecter is a salvific figure. I think it's a mistake to see Hannibal Lecter as even a human. The film gives us plenty of indications that this guy is literally a vampire. There's the one moment where a guard actually asks Starling, he's like, is it true what they say, that he's some kind of vampire? And she says something like, they don't have a name for what he is. Yeah, right. Which is also true. Which is the vampire is just a name we give to something. Right. Which is something that gets at his particularity. But at the same time, he kind of is a vampire, a little bit. Yeah. Well, he eats humans. He doesn't seem to sleep. There's that weird moment where she goes and he... He's just sitting awake in the middle of the night in his uh Yeah, in this in dark room. Or another part where he's being punished by being shown a video of the crucifix. You know, the psychiatrist puts on this televangelist and there's a clear crucifix and he apparently hates that because he's a vampire. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even notice that. That's awesome. And, you know, when he kills those two guards before escaping, when you see him, he's listening to Bach's Goldberg Variations, which is a classical music nerd, of course, I noticed. And I love that piece, yeah. Yeah, and it shows and it shows one of the guards has been beaten to death, and the other, we can hear him crawling around, badly wounded and groaning. And Hannibal Lecter is standing in his cell. The door is open, but he hasn't even bothered to step out of his cell yet. Just conducting. Yeah. And he has blood running down the front of his face, just like a vampire, like, like yeah. blood pouring down his chin and staining his shirt. And this top light, like beaming down on him, which gives him this incredible power. Power. Yeah. 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 So those moves are obviously deliberate. And there are other indications too. For example, when they're transferring Hannibal Lecter, who's just a guy, you know, they've already tied him up in that thing with the face mask and everything to keep him from biting police officers. And they have like 10 guys with guns trained on him. Right. And when they're massive overkill. When they're transporting him, they have like a whole battery of like squad cars, like following the truck. It's like, because an institution is powerless before an individual who's made that step, who's fully singular. That's I think that interesting. That's, and, and so they need to, to deploy all these resources and yet he still escapes, you know, yeah. because he's sidestepped the whole logic of the people who want to control him. He's completely yep. outside of it. So therefore they can't figure him out. They need like <laughs> literal armies to try to contain him. And even that fails. Because so. he's down for a jack move. Right. This is a great detail from uh, pattern recognition, which we talked about a short time ago. Um, The character of uh, Case, the hero of that book, is reminiscing about a boyfriend she had who would sometimes say that he was down for a jack move. That's a line from Straight Outta Compton, the NWA track. Uh, And in the track, it means like jack as in carjacking or just jacking your stuff, stealing, right? That would be a jack move. But in the book, Case kind of mulls it over and she thinks of it less as stealing and more in terms of like just the unpredictable move, the sideways move, the crab wise move. The trickster, yeah. Yeah, that just takes you out of whatever expectations you had going in and there's a great kiss off line in one of the chapters where her nemesis, Dorotea, pulls some shit on her. And she, she'd come to the meeting knowing that Dorotea is going to pull some shit. And yet when it happens, she didn't see it coming, couldn't even have imagined it and is caught blindsided yet again. And there's this wry line, like turns out Dorotea was down for a jack move. Right. And, th- and that's a kind of a great thing. You actually see this with real life villains. The worst 
academic sort of judicial situation I ever got into was very early in my career. It was before I was working in my present institution. And there's a student who had committed I'm going to be super vague about this because this motherfucker is still out there somewhere like a shark swimming around in the depths. But this guy is one of the true few psychopaths I've ever dealt with. And I got all kinds of fucking stories about this dude. I mean, he made everyone's life a living hell. And finally, he was expelled from the university. But it was funny how long it took to get to that point because he was a genius with jack moves Mm. like the formal institutional mechanisms assume certain kinds of behavior yeah like when we ask you to do this then you're going to do that because that's part of the institutional mechanism and if somebody just refuses to and does something totally different The institution will always be on the back foot, always. Institutions don't know how to deal with people like that. No, institutions deal with masks. They deal with those part of ourselves. I mean, I think that um, Starling is a perfect example here. She's a woman trying to make it in in a predominantly male institution. I think this takes place in the late 80s, early 90s, whatever. Whenever we want to be part of an institution, the institution expects certain things of us and expects us to leave certain things at home or not bring them up. For example, it's better not to masturbate in your in your cubicle, right? Like there are things that you... I mean, especially you, if it's a cubicle. Yeah, if it's, if it's a closed office like yours. Actually, I have a funny story about that. <laughs> okay. uh, but I can't tell it. And not, it's not about me. I, I will say, okay, this is... I'm not putting in the show, but I will just tell you because it's funny. This... Um, a very good friend of mine works at a university where all the doors of the offices have a little thin pane of glass, like mm-hmm. a little window so you can tell if someone's in. Sometimes people will put like posters over it because they want the privacy. But uh, there's this guy, this old dude, like kind of professor who hangs on for years and years after they've really served their usefulness. Like, right people who are like old and decrepit and they suck as teachers but they don't want to quit so they just keep showing up year after year he was one of those guys dead wood uh, anyway there's a student of my friends who came in early one morning on a saturday and walked by his office and uh, this guy was just sitting there and you could see through the window was just like masturbating oh man and and uh the student just like stopped for a second kind of surprised and and the um this old dude looks up and so, and I, I think that I always thought this was such a funny response. He was like, no! <laughs> <laughs> With the crane shot. No! <laughs> His suddenly flaccid penis, like, flopping down. <laughs> <laughs> We have to keep that in the show. It's too good. Um, What was I saying? So, so in other words, you put on a mask when you work for an institution. You might not really believe in all of the things that the institution represents. Most people aren't like passionate about them. I mean, Sartre had a name for that. If you're too into your job, uh, he called that bad, bad faith. faith. Right. So yeah. you need to reserve a little bit of your self, you know, like outside of your institutional, um, you know, incarnation as a, a member of the staff or whatever. I love and his example of bad faith, which is an over-sedulous waiter. Yes. Somebody who's just too into his role. It's like, would Madame like to look at the yeah. dessert menu? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Just like being way too into that role. Very common in Paris. Yes. Very common generally. We've all encountered that. Yeah. The person who just takes it too seriously, who's not aware that um, to a certain extent, we're make-believing here, you know? So that's the first thing that's asked of us is to put on a mask. So you'll have your father mask in a home where, you know, in in a lot of homes, people 
aren't intimate enough. Put on the enough, mask of patriarchal yeah, authority. They'll put on that mask, and then when they go to the office, they have the barrister mask or the you know the the clerk mask, and then when they go to you know whatever. The point is that you you wear these don these different masks, each of the each of which requires you to conceal certain parts of yourself and reveal others, or even mm-hmm. put on new ones, and then. And then you'll have the shadow, which is you have your own personal persona, which is the the self that you'll admit to yourself, <laughs> the self that you allow yourself to believe you are. Whereas, in fact, there are all kinds of parts of you that you don't want to admit to yourself. And so you're wearing another mask even to yourself. So when we first meet Starling, I love the first shot of the film. It starts with a shot on this eerie forest, right? This foggy forest then the camera pans and reveals a path leading deeper into the woods so we automatically interpret that as a a symbol as we're going down this path this is the path Mm. we're going to but then starling comes from the opposite direction she's running she's running away from what we immediately envisioned was at the other end of this path she's running away and when uh hannibal lecter kind of sums her up at one point he's like um he talks about those awkward makeout sessions in the back seats of cars and all the stuff she's had to go through. She's just an inch away from being white trash and all that. And at the mm-hmm. end, it's like you would keep running, running, running all the way to the FBI, you know, basically yeah. making it clear that this career path she's chosen is an attempt to escape, to escape something about herself that she won't admit, to escape something mm-hmm. about the world that she can't admit. Yeah. Um, and it's the the classic Hollywood thing. It's like the classic Hollywood ideology is that evil is something that can be eliminated. If only we catch Buffalo Bill, the world will be good. If only Darth Vader dies, the world will be good. Whereas, in fact, what Hannibal Lecter is saying to us is that this is precisely that nothing can silence the lambs. That evil is constitutive. It's like... Um, it has its own fundamental ontology in the world. And only by accepting that can we then progress, you know? And that that idea itself finds a very beautiful visual manifestation in that death heads moth, which Buffalo Bill shoves down the throat of his victims. It, the, they open the cocoon, they reveal a death heads moth, which is a moth with literally a death head drawn on its back. That's what it looks like. I mean, it's That's really its mar- hard. The markings that yeah, it has. And it, and it yeah. naturally has this. For me, that's an indication that what we want to banish from the world, what we perceive as always a particular, if I can eliminate that evil particular, usually a human, I will make the world good. It's saying, no, see this skull head, this evil is is just deeply ingrained in the fabric of the universe itself. Um, but okay, I'm going to challenge you on that. Yeah. How does Lecter communicate this idea that the lambs will never stop screaming? Well, that's my interpretation as to what he's at the end. Yeah, I know. But what's it based on? Like, how are you arriving at that reading? Well, in the I'm fi- not disagreeing with the reading. I just want to know the, you know. The logic behind it. Yeah. So in the last scene of the film, or the, the penultimate scene of the film, Agent Starling has just received her badge. She's just been admitted into the FBI. And there's a phone call for her. And she goes, and it's Hannibal Lecter, who's escaped. And Hannibal Lecter asks her, so, Agent Starling, have the lambs stopped screaming? And you can tell by the way he's asking that it's, it's, it's a rhetorical question. He knows full well that the lambs haven't stopped. And she doesn't answer. And of course, I mean, just having seen his level of insight into the human condition, I think he knew full well that the answer to the question was no. And that what he's trying to show her is that he, being the embodiment of evil, is a just a permanent fixture of the universe. And the film mm. leaves us with the sense nice. that he's literally immortal, that he's just walking off into the distance, blending yeah. into a crowd, disappearing back into the cultural fabric, and just becoming once again the latent evil that's always present. That's just my interpretation of what the film is doing. Um, yeah. yeah. Actually, I like that a lot. That final shot is really powerful because, okay, so he's clearly arrived at, uh, you know, Jamaica or the Barbados or some Caribbean place mm-hmm. and he's dressed as a tourist and he he's just blended in perfectly. And we see a crane shot 
So he puts the phone down and then he sees, I think he sees Dr. Chilton. Yeah, he does. Yeah. His, his old nemesis. My, uh, an old some, friend. Yeah. And he says, I'm having an old friend for dinner. Lol. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and, and just very casually follows him and we can only imagine what he does to him later. But like, he just, he blends into the crowd, just as you say, and as the, the crane cam pulls up and reveals this street just full of teeming humanity and that sort of teeming humanity thing. I mean, that certainly uh, supports your interpretation, the idea of like, yeah, like the devil. He's sort of like the devil in, uh, in, the, in the Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil. Right. He has been at every uh, moment of evil in human history. And he's a man of wealth and taste, right? Right. Uh, much yeah. like Lecter himself. Yeah. And that sense of ubiquity and that his place is not, you know, upon a throne of skulls atop a lake of blood in some circle of hell, but it's just among the people. Everyday motley humanity, the crowd of people on a street. And that's beautifully managed, actually, in a little musical detail where the, the music, this doomy orchestral score that we've heard throughout the film, briefly, there's like a street crier, like a, a street vendor, or maybe just somebody returning home from work who's singing a little song that is in a totally different tonal space from the cue. Right. And so you just have this weird Charles Ives collision of a couple of different musical layers just for a moment. And it's just an odd little moment. This is one of a, one of your rifts. I was watching this last night and I was like, man, this film is so full of rifts. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one of them. And coming when it does at the pretty much at the moment that we lose visual contact with Lecter, we can't distinguish him from the crowd. Uh, it's just such a great little rifty moment that just, uh, to me, just tells the tale of what you just said. Right. That little dissonance at the end reminds us that there is a, a kind of fundamental dissonance in the just the calculus of reality, that there's like something there that's not that doesn't there's always going to be that little. It's like a rift. Anyways, it's like a rift about rifts in a way. It's like say telling yeah. us that Hannibal Lecter is the rift at the center. It's what prevents us from every ever, ever fully knowing the human psyche or anything else for that matter. There's always something that eludes us. Yeah. And worth so. noting the composer for this film is Howard Shore. Who Howard we've already, Shore, yeah. Who we've already discussed in the context of the David Cronenberg film of Naked Lunch. He does all of Cronenberg's music, I believe. Um, yeah, he my, does. My favorite. They, they, they go back. I mean, they were buds in Toronto in the 70s. Right. My favorite score of his is the score he wrote for Cronenberg's uh, film Crash, which mm. is, uh, it's like a chamber orchestra comprised entirely of electric guitars. It's really cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Best known, of course, for the scores that he wrote for Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm -hmm. which is a totally different idiom. You know, every one of his scores is in a totally different idiom. So the Crash one, it's like this weird scoring and it's this its own sonic world he's really good at that and he creates a wonderful sonic world for silence of the lambs he does it's very subtle i didn't, I didn't pay too much attention to the music but there were times where there's a lot of kind of like almost hammer horror or really classic old school hollywood scoring in there like oh, yeah. the moment where the cops finally break into the that large kind of ballroom where hannibal lecter's kept in a cage at the center of the room and he was guarded yeah. by these two officers. Hannibal Lecter escaped and killed the officers. Um, they walk in and you see that Hannibal Lecter has hung one of the dead guards from the cage and placed like 20 him in, feet off the ground. Yeah, like just totally off the ground with his skin flapping down under his arms like angel wings. So he looks like a crucified yeah. angel and he's fully disemboweled. So his guts are just hanging out. And... And he's actually taken that light that was top lighting him before and placed it at the back of the room to backlight this angel, to create this, essentially this piece of art, this artwork yeah. out of his crime. 
And the music at that point goes, it swells like a crazy chord, like Bravo! in this really <laughs> old school Hollywood style. Yeah. But, but because we've been thrown out of the old Hollywood formula of identifying evil as a particular character, as a particular in the story, the evil is so ambient that that Hollywood swell is, is kind of ironic. It's almost saying like, it's doing the thing that Hollywood's always done, but the implications are so much darker um, mm. because we're rooting mm. for the guy who did it. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> for true. all kinds of reasons, you know. It's it's funny. I was talking about that scene with my wife this morning as she was giving me a lift into school. I was talking about how, for me, Silence of the Lambs is one of those films, actually a lot like Raiders of the Lost Ark that's a perfect film or at least an almost perfect film. Yeah. And she's like, well, what's not perfect about it? I was like, I didn't like that scene. I, I still think it's slightly silly. That moment when they walk into that room and the guy has been his, his staged as a, as a flayed angel. I fucking and she, love and, it. And, <laughs> and it's funny because it, it seems so over the top to me. And I was like, you know, it kind of strange credulity, like somehow in the few moments he has to affect his escape, he's going to somehow, haul this guy up 25 feet in the air well he's not he's not 25 feet to be fair he's did about he have, did he did he did he have a fucking ladder did he have a winch how did he move the light you know and, and i was like getting really literalistic and she was sort of sighing heavily and she was like look he might as well be a superhero he yeah. might as well be a supernatural figure he might as well be the actual devil you don't need to explain how he does the shit that he does. And as usual, my wife is absolutely right. Right, right, right. It's yet another indication that we're not dealing with a human being here, right? And yeah. I do see your point, though, that it, it strains uh, credulity. You're right. Um, but at the same time, on a purely just like concrete level, you could say that that installation that he puts together is part of the escape plan. It's what distracts the officers. It puts them in a state where they're not going to be taking, you know, they're not going to be paying too paying much attention. close attention to the guard who's lying on the ground. Yeah, who is Hannibal Lecter wearing the other guard's face. I think that that breakout scene is the best I've ever seen in film. And the yeah. one I'm most likely to believe because it would have worked. If he could have done that, it would have worked. Nobody would have touched that guy's face. He had an eyeball hanging out. Like if they would have just put him on a stretcher, wheeled him out of there and that ambulance would have gone off on its own. Yeah. Which is exactly what happens. Yeah. And I remember seeing that film and it came out in 1991. I went with a bunch of my friends and that was a film that like everybody was talking about. It was sort of like Rages of the Lost Ark from that point of view. It was a huge hit. It was one of those things where everybody was like, okay, don't like, don't spoil the film. Because that twist, if you don't know that it's coming, it's genuinely surprising. It's a real mindfuck. And I remember watching this with this friend of mine who's always very vocal. When You know, you always have that friend when you go to see a movie with them. Yeah. They're the talking. ones who are going to be like, oh, don't go in that room or whatever. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very irritating. The moment that you figure it out. Like it has this kind of mousetrap feeling, like a mousetrap going snap. And then you realize, oh, he was wearing his face. Yeah. I, I remember my friend just going, like, <laughs> had a look on her face like, like, uh, like she was on the cover of a board game. Right. Like, you know, like, <laughs> well, we need a still of the face you just made for the, for the show notes. And she was just like, no, just like, but it's, it was such a visceral reaction to this reveal of such a cunningly created twist. Yeah. And also just the feeling that goes with that of like dawning horror. Right. It's such a great, the calls coming from inside the house kind of moment. Yes. Yes. It's also really well shot. The shot where you see the, uh, the paramedic and then you yeah. see Hannibal Lecter in the background, get up and remove the face and just look at him. It's just so beautifully <laughs> shot. And once again, it's like Anthony Hopkins just, you know, owning, um, Another great twist is at the end where the institution, the FBI thinks they've got Buffalo Bill oh, and they've deployed like helicopters and shit to go. And they have all the power of this institution going after, after, after this guy. Calumet City, hundreds of miles away from where the guy actually is. Yeah. Meanwhile, 
Agent Starling, using Hannibal Lecter's clues, has found her way to Bill, Buffalo Bill's actual house. And the way that they intercut the two sequences is you don't know, you know, you don't know in which of the two houses, the one that Agent Starling's approaching or the one that the FBI is is raiding, you don't know which one contains <laughs> Buffalo Bill until the door opens and you see the Buffalo Bill is facing Agent Starling, which means the individual has won against the institution. She's outsmarted Buffalo Bill while all the FBI couldn't do it. And mm-hmm. um, and then you get that same feeling. She goes in. So now we know who she's with, but she doesn't know. She's not sure that it, she thinks it's just another witness that she wants to interview, right? She steps in and then she quickly starts to read the signs and realize she realizes that this is Buffalo Bill. And I think well, that she that, sees a, a death head's moth fluttering right. around. Right. And these That's are exactly like rare. It. This is a rare insect that right. she and like there's no way you would see one by accident in that moment. She knows that he's the killer. He's the killer. And what unfolds is just fantastic. Um just a, a quickly, another indication that this is about the institution versus the individual. There's a moment where Hannibal Lecter says to her, read Marcus Aurelius. Remember that part? Yes. Ask of each thing, what is it in itself? What is its nature? He says, that's the way you figure out what's going on in this world. Not by asking what type of thing is this, yeah. but what yeah. is this for thing each, in itself? For each particular thing. Yeah. For each, ask for each thing, what is it in itself? And that's how he he came to the conclusion, the discovery that what motivates Buffalo Bill isn't anger or loss or revenge, but he covets. I love the way he says it too. No, he covets. <laughs> it's just so good. It's like, it's so <laughs> obvious to him. It's like, why can't you see this? You're not looking at things the way they are. You're looking, you're always projecting types and generalizations onto things. You're not seeing you know, like everything is in the case file, he tells her. And it's also interesting that the final answer, he covets. That's not a word we use anymore. We don't mm. use the word covet. That's an Old Testament kind of word. Yeah, it's, an, it's, it's a King James word, but it's also a theological word. It's a word that hitches desire on a more cosmic mm. force. Like when you covet, you are an instance of coveting. You're instantiating uh, what's the what's the noun? Covetousness? What is it? I guess. <laughs> yeah. You're instantiating covetousness. Well, what does it mean to covet? It means to desire something so much that you want to make it part of you. That that you 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 identified so much with you that any individuality it has has to be erased in in order for it to become part of you. It's like almost a, a um it's like when you see a super cute baby and you want to like eat it i don't know if you have that feeling <laughs> you know it's like that's kind of an innocent occasion for that feeling it's well, like people say that like oh i could just eat you i all could up. just eat you all up yeah it's this i, I want to put you inside what i am i want you to become yeah. part of this thing i am and uh and that's There's exactly a great what, moment actually in a documentary about hip-hop turntablist djs um Somebody that's being interviewed, and, he's, and this guy is a colossal collection of records, and he talks about how when he was just in his real record collecting, he wanted to eat records. Yeah. <laughs> and he says that. I wanted, I wanted to eat records. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, like, that's coveting. Yeah. I get it. And, and that's exactly what Buffalo Bill wants. He doesn't want to eat his victim, but he wants to become a woman. He wants to be his victims. Yeah. And, uh, and that's he what Lecter He wants to literally sees. wrap himself up in their skin. So once again, there's a a critique, an implicit critique in Hannibal Lecter's discourse telling us that our modern way of looking at things needs to be complemented with a return to a more ancient way of looking at things. And that would mean, this is going back to our episode on Arthur Machen, um, and also what I think is the essence of the decadent in literature is the affirmation of evil as sin. Not because the decadent writer or the decadent hero is evil, but because only an affirmation of evil as a positive energy, as a positive force in the universe, uh, positive again, not meant in the sense of good, but in the sense of present. Existing. Existing. um, Can allow us to deal with reality. And 
ironically, or strangely enough, you know, we were talking about the doctrine of privatio boni, which is the traditional theological doctrine. Initially, I think, started by St. Augustine. He kind of put it, cobbled it together at the beginning, that evil doesn't have any existence. Evil is non-being. That belief wasn't really taken seriously, I don't think, by anyone but these scholastic philosophers in the Middle Ages. For most people, when you look at medieval art, evil is a real presence. The devil is a real figure. You know, they almost had a, I think that this is just me, you know, this is just conjecture, but I think that medieval people had a more Manichaean cosmology than people at St. Aquinas would have liked them to have. Probably, um, yeah. And I've read that. Um, but what happens is it's only in the modern age that we finally really believe in privatio boni. It's only <laughs> now that we say evil is just a matter of perspective, that evil doesn't exist. In mm. fact, the minute, if we say evil exists as an ontological force, the whole universe becomes animistic automatically. Intention becomes part of the fabric of the universe, which is absurd on modern terms. So it's like we have how realized. Do you, how, how do you reason that out though? Like the moment you say evil exists, the universe becomes ensouled. That's a basically what you just said. Absolutely. Evil, understanding I, evil in this I sense. I mean, I don't disagree. I feel intuitively yeah. that must be right. right but, but it's I, not obvious. Well, so I how would, do you figure? I would say that because what we mean by evil, and we're talking about evil in the sense of that presence that we feel around like, yeah. you know, nasty bureaucrats or psychopaths. And Racists. Sort of, it feels, you were saying, it feels like a presence. It feels like something. Yeah. Uh, evil is maybe less descriptive a term than something like malevolence. Uh, mm. There's, like, I've, I've been stuck in a tent on my own in the woods with a crazy fucking tempest raging over, like, in, raging around me. It's happened to me once. I, the biggest storm I've ever experienced, I was uh, camping alone in the woods when it happened. Like the, the lightning was striking the lake I was camping beside and it felt to me malevolent. It didn't feel like just a natural process that I was interpreting as name because it felt like this thing had a kind I of intelligence. I see what um, you're saying. When I looked at videos of the Fukushima, the, the big tsunami that hit Japan and you're seeing these these wave upon wave of, of, of seawater just, just crashing into the city, just taking it apart. There's an immediate feeling that modern minds would say uh, is an instance of projection where we feel this kind of malevolent force behind certain natural processes. Cancer, if you're diagnosed with cancer, your immediate feeling will be that your cancer is evil, that your cancer is a malevolent force. And I think that to say that evil has a positive charge, ontologically speaking, is to say that that malevolence we detect is not a projection. There's an actual malevolent, malevolent force in the universe mm. that is ensouls the universe. Um, mm. And that's, okay. hard, that's hard to think, I think. It is. <laughs> but interesting. Actually, it ties to something that I was going to mention also um, machen in the present instance, but I was going to go in a slightly different direction. Uh, and that is his idea of ecstasy. Mm. Okay. So if you remember the white people, that was like our second full show that we did. Yeah. Love that on show. Machen's the white people. Yeah. Holds up. I think so. We didn't, we didn't quite have the sound. No, I was, I was placing yet. the microphone wrong. I was, <laughs> <laughs> you did I did that for yeah, a good six almost episodes. literally not knowing which end of the microphone to speak right. into. Yeah, no, yeah. literally, literally yeah. not knowing. <laughs> but um, but in any event, one of the things that we talked about there is how Ambrose, who's telling us his theories of sin, and then the long central section of the white people is the green book, which exemplifies what he means by sin. And even by the end of that long central section, we still don't really know what he means. And the reality anchor character who goes to see Ambrose still doesn't quite understand what the hell Ambrose is talking about. Um, because Ambrose keeps saying, well, what we call sin is usually, you know, social, what he calls social sins. Right. Uh, it's bad things that we do to each other in a moment of anger or need thoughtlessness or need. But... He's like, that's not sin. 
sin is something deeper. It's more radical. And he's like, people who are conventionally considered good people in the sense that they lead blameless lives can be utterly evil. Yeah. Uh, utterly sunk in sin. And somebody who seems like a criminal, a, a total miscreant, can actually be saintly. And so the quality of sin is something that's independent of social circumstances. Okay, then what is that something? And he keeps dancing around and he refuses ever to, to come up with a with a, a direct definition. But the closest he comes is saying that it's it's ecstasy. Yeah, it's he a form of ecstasy. ecstasy. Yeah. It's a form of ecstasy, which he defines as a turning away from the common life. Uh, he defines it a number of ways, but that way in particular. And in this manner, he is relating Ambrose, that is to say, Machen, is relating Ambrose's theory of sin to his own, Machen's own aesthetic theory in yeah. hieroglyphics, which we're going to do a show on because... That book is fucking awesome. It is. And actually, I've been rereading it, and Machen's aesthetic theory has really seeped into my own way of thinking. This idea of ecstasy as the indispensable quality that makes a distinction between art and artifice. Yeah. And just analogously with art, just as Ambrose is saying, well, you know, just because you do what are conventionally considered criminal things, that's not sin on its own. Likewise, just because something is called art and is hanging in an art museum or played at a concert hall or categorized as literary fiction in the bookstore, as opposed to genre fiction, which is supposed to be totally different, just because these things are conventionally called art doesn't make them art. Right. Likewise, you could look at something that's pulp, like you know the works of H.P. Lovecraft or Philip K. Dick, and nevertheless discovered that they are true works of art. Well, then clearly it's not the word we're using that defines whether they're art or not. It's some inner quality. And yes. for Machen, that quality is for art as for sin, it's ecstasy. It's a turning away from the common life. And that's a really rich idea, which I'm not doing justice to. And again, we should do a we'll whole do a show, show on, on that, hieroglyphics. Yeah. yeah. But suffice it to say that that sense of ecstasy, that's what Lecter has. That's what Lecter is. Lecter is ecstasy. He is. And Machen's message in The White People, and again in the hieroglyphics in a different way, is that ecstasy is not immoral. It's not moral. It's amoral. and It's, it's transmoral. It's like you can achieve ecstasy through evil. As, mm -hmm. as he says in one part, he says there are, there are more true saints than there are true sinners, but true sinners achieve ecstasy. Yeah. Um, or you can achieve it through good. The point is that ecstasy is an aesthetic or ontological category, not a moral category, but it presupposes, it, it requires, for Machen's ideas to make any sense, it requires that evil and good exist. Right? Because mm -hmm. if evil did not exist, then there could be no true sinner. So what he's saying is that there is a transmoral level. There is a way in which the universe is amoral or beyond morality. But in order to be that, it needs to also contain necessarily good and evil as polar forces, which is interesting. But yes, Hannibal Lecter is decadent because he seeks this ecstasy. He is that ecstasy. But he achieves it through the affirmation of evil. That's, that's, that's crazy. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> um, but that's what the decadents were up to. Uh, we talked about this once. We had an exchange about this. The whole point of decadent literature, so far as I can see it anyways, is to affirm the reality of evil so that good can exist. Because if we deny the reality of evil, if we deny the cosmic malevolence, we have no grounds to state that there is any type of cosmic good. Now, the alternative is just to say, well, that the universe is neither good nor evil. It's just bleh. But that just is what it is. But even the thought of that immediately puts us in the presence of that absolute malevolence that we were talking about just a few minutes ago. 
To think of the world as indifferent is to sense, to experience the world as fundamentally evil. So we mm -hmm. don't have a choice. Either yeah. we live which in- is, Which in, is exactly how Lovecraft experienced it. For him, his whole thing is the cosmos is indifference, but that registers as evil in of course, universe. Because as we said at the beginning, true evil manifests itself as indifference. That's precisely what evil is. Like, it's the indifference of the storm that I felt as malevolence. It doesn't give a shit about me. And uh, the, all that Machin and Hannibal Lecter are asking us to do is to honor the impression that the malevolence is actually a malevolence. Because only by doing that, only by recognizing that, you know, the skull on the moth is meant to be there. It's an actual sign given by the actual world, not just projection on our part. Can we then live in a world where good is possible? Because if we eliminate the evil, we also eliminate the good, we eliminate the axis. So it's like, can we as moderns think of our world as being charged with actual good and evil? That's kind of the challenge I think that Hannibal Lecter is asking of us through this film yeah. and yeah. it's it's a hard fucking question consider subscribing to weird studies on itunes stitcher or another podcast service you can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.